This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. We're back again here with you all. want to thank you all for joining us and continuing to tune in to the show. Um, I'm sure that many of you had the opportunity, as we've heard from some some folks, that you had an opportunity to hear the last show. Marcus and I were selling, celebrating, I guess, what was a milestone in the show. Really, it was a milestone. And, and in that show, we quoted uh, Nelson Mandela, who said, remember to celebrate milestones as you prepare for the road ahead. Um, that was a really rich conversation. We had Thomas Calder as a guest and we thought it appropriate to bring Thomas Calder on to the show because Thomas had sat down and had an interview. Uh, we did an interview with uh, Thomas for the Mountain Express, and it was an interesting conversation. Um, and I think, Marcus, as I think about it, I think uh, Thomas probably got more than he bargained for in that conversation. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, you know, I think I think part of what was useful um, or I should say uh, part of what was um interesting to observe in the conversation that that the three of us had um in advance of the piece that he published recently in the mountain express um uh was 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 that you know thomas really had um that conversation gave thomas the opportunity to gain insight not only into the kind of inner workings of the show into the show's um, sort of origin story, but also into our friendship, right? Into the dynamics of our friendship and um, to really understand better the relationship between our friendship uh, and the show. Because I think, you know, without without the former, there is no latter. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, it was interesting to to share that uh, with with Thomas as 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 someone who has been a regular listener to the show, right? I mean, I think right. it's one thing to talk to a journalist who's only recently discovering the show, but but Thomas has been engaged with the show and with the kind of conversations that we've been having uh, for some time now. So I think that that made the the, the conversation that the three of us had uh, that much more robust, that that right. much richer. And, you know, Marcus is not only a conversation with uh, with Thomas, and, and I want to talk a little bit more about that because you know, it was interesting to get Thomas's perspective on the show and on certain shows that we've done. And he was able to name some of his favorite shows. I don't know that we ever got around to that question with you to talk about that. But I want to talk about that in just a few minutes. But, you know, it we, that conversation also included you all out there in the audience, those who are regular listeners to the show and those who are becoming new listeners to the show. Because, Marcus, I know the audience is growing. I, I, I watched the numbers on our Facebook page, which, you know, you and I have very busy lives. And, you know, we are, I, I, Marcus, I still put myself kind of in that old school thought. Um, my sons, as you know, and your son, they're of different generations. My sons are of the social media age. And so they're brilliant at how uh, they use social media. Me, not so much. And and I think so much of it is because of, um, you know, so many things going on. You know, you as a full-time professor at the university there in Asheville, me now in this new role as Deputy Secretary for Archives and History in the state's Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, which is great. It, it calls for a, a lot. And so sometimes we're slow um, in maybe responding to certain messages on social media, but we do enjoy hearing from you all. We're thinking about you all. want to, you know, kind of pick up, you know, uh, 
you know, our speed at which we respond. Um, but we think about you all out there in the audience and what you're thinking. And it's great to hear from you. And I see the numbers and I mentioned social media, Marcus, because I've been watching the number of people who are finding the show on Facebook and liking the Facebook page. That number is growing. And as you know, you know, we, you and I've been doing a lot of work with separate entities and uh, they've been doing a number of stories, not only on um, on. Well, just on broader topics that you right. and I have been engaged in. And then when they post, you know, they link to the Waters and Harvest show. Mm -hmm. And so I'm watching the numbers of not just people here in the state of North Carolina who are finding the show and listening, but it's people outside the state, which is great. I mean, early in the show, we heard from people as far away as Ireland who had heard some of the shows that you and I had done. Then they were contacting us, asking us questions about certain things which is just great. So it's great to continue to think about you all and know that you all are here engaged in these conversations with us. And as we prepare for that 100th show, Marcus, we, you and I put out a question, you know, for people to offer reflections about, you know, what the show had meant to them. And um, that show went so fast last time with Thomas on it, we didn't get, even get a chance to think about, okay, what is the future? So here we are at 101. I'm wondering, Marcus, as we think about that, are you up for another 100 shows? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I, I will say, I mean, had you, had you asked me, what was it, in 2014 or 15, uh, you know, if I was up for at least 100 shows, I might have balked. <laughs> at that prospect but you know i think given where the show is and given you know you know thinking about what you just said about the level of engagement that we're seeing on social media and elsewhere as far as um you know our listeners really keeping up with the show and you know providing feedback raising questions um offering support uh, I'd I have to say, yeah, at, at this point, I think I am up for another another 100 shows. And, you know, I, I too, have been kind of keeping track of the um, of, of 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 the level of, of audience engagement. And also, you know, I want to just back up for a second to, to crack a quick joke um, that relates to your point. Not, about not, um, not, not about me. Right. No, 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 okay, no, okay. no, not this time. Although I do owe you several. I owe you several. So they're coming. They're in the mail. Okay, but, okay. Um, you know, my my son will. Uh, my son is six. Uh, he's six years of age, at least, at least mathematically speaking. He'll be starting first grade soon. And you know, to your point about our our your your boys who are much older and my son coming from different generations. Uh, as far as my son is concerned, I'm gonna speak for you. Sometimes I don't know because some of the stuff that he says makes me wonder wonder if he's been here before. So <laughs> I have to just have to just put that put that out there. But and, um, I can, and I can and I can attest to the fact that that is true because I. I often in conversation with six-year-old Carter, who is my godson. And I think, you know, man, he sounds like an adult. Right? <laughs> yeah, a wise adult. Sometimes, sometimes, right? Um, no, but, you know, I, it's what I'm, what, what is happening is that I'm, I'm real, I'm beginning to realize how the show is helping to foment a sort of ongoing conversation that is what I would call um, rhizomatic, right? It, it is, it is, it's almost as if the show has sort of planted something. Um, and then underneath it, there are all of these different, um, roots that are connected to the show and, and the topics that we've been discussing. Um, and, you know, but they're, but they're 
exploring different topics, moving in different directions, related directions, but different directions, um, uh, you know, challenging us to consider uh, topics, uh, issues, questions that we haven't, um, that either we have not considered at all before, or perhaps have not considered um, with as much depth as we have other topics. And so there's this kind of rhizomatic process that I see unfolding, which to me is is, is exciting. And I think um, the more the more we do the show, um, the greater this this growth will be. Um, I hope. But I and and I think that's what we were after, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In in concept in conceptualizing the show, um, you know, several years ago, back in 2014, 15, right? How can we how can we take what we do as scholars? How can we take the conversations that you and I were having um, as professional scholars and stage translatable, accessible conversations, right? For the broader community. At that time, it was it was strictly just the broader Asheville community. Now I think mm-hmm. you know our audience has has grown far beyond the 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 boundaries of Asheville. But how can we stage translatable, accessible conversations that grow over time, but not only grow over time, but also substantively impact people's thinking, right? On the kinds of issues that we discuss, sharpen people's critical awareness, right? Of of the kinds of of concerns that we we explore on the show. And so for me, you know, it's exciting to see that, it gives me a level of, of fulfillment, right? Um, and some assurance that, you know, the work that we were doing on the show, with that, that the conversations that we're having um, are of value on some level, right? Right. To, to the broader community and to our listenership in particular. You you know, you're absolutely right. And, and Marcus, to think about uh, the conversation with uh, with Thomas, I want to go back to that. And, and one thing we, we said, we wanted to illustrate what, what it is like to, to sit down and be in conversation with each other, right? Which I think is a foundational um, is foundational to to the building of community. We we've talked a lot about community and you know what community means. We have asked these kind of philosophical questions, which you and I, well, I love to stay in that philosophical space. It's it's just a richly rewarding space to be in. And here, Marcus, I think about. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois and what he says in the introduction are in the first chapter of The Souls of Black Folks, which is one of those books that is, I think, is an important book in the American literary canon. It is one of the books that should be read by everyone. But when Du Bois talks about uh, the segregation that existed in his time, because he's writing what in 1903 when he writes and publishes uh, when he publishes uh, this collection of essays, and by then we know where we are as a nation. You know, strict segregation had been had been enacted; it was in place. But he talked about even his childhood about you know when he realized that uh, our society looked at him as being different from other people and and what that meant. But he also talked about this veil. He said, so there was a veil between us and them, you know, those who were people of color, those who were not, 
um, that there was this veil that divided. But he also talked about he was able to rise above the veil and dwell with people like Shakespeare and other major uh, writers and and philosophers because he could engage them in conversation by engaging text, right, engaging books. And that's part of what we really wanted to get people to do is just to be not only wanting to engage some of the books that we raise on the show and topics that we engage on the show. And we get we get questions all the time about uh, can you provide us with a list of the books uh, uh, that that you're mentioning and that you reference. But we also were hoping that that what we do on the show, even when we're here alone, as we are today, or if we have a guest, that people get to see us practice conversations, practice being in community with each other. And we don't always agree on everything, right. but we're able to kind of civilly go through the, that process, and we wanted people to be able to see that. And I think it was demonstrated in that last conversation with Thomas. And one thing I have to mention here about the conversation with Thomas that he brought up after we went off the air was um, the whole issue of Alexis de Tocqueville. Remember, he said that he, if we didn't raise or if I didn't raise Alexis de Tocqueville's name in the interview that he did with us, he was going to be disappointed. So I tried not to disappoint and raised <laughs> raised him. Um, I was recently uh, did a, a, a opening talk and, and welcome for um, a group that had gathered uh, as the Thomas Wolfe uh, Society. And I was able to get Alexis de Tocqueville's name in there, Mark. So I found a way to get in. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, Thomas said he, you know, if you don't bring up Alexis de Tocqueville's name, I'm going to be disappointed. But after we went off the air, Thomas told us that I think his two, three-year-old daughter, right? I, you know, and I don't have her name in front of me to remember her name. But his three-year-old daughter, for some reason, has become fixated on a book by Alexis de Tocqueville. And while it's not democracy in America, it is his history of the French Revolution, which mm. was an important turning point in global history, as we know. Mm. And Thomas actually, uh, if he were here, he could tell the story himself about how she's actually sleeping with this book. And when he... Um, he tried to take it, the book away from her to read another story. She said, you've got to make sure that, you know, you mark my place where I am in this book. <laughs> so he sent me pictures, Marcus. He actually sent me pictures of his daughter with this book, uh, The History of the French Revolution by Alexis de Tocqueville. And I told Thomas that I was going to use those pictures to shame everybody who has not read Tocqueville. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliantly put. You know, but believe it or not, I mean, you, you mentioned that um, you mentioned a moment ago that you and I don't always agree on everything. This is this is absolutely true, and the reality is that um, I I don't I don't always agree with you that the Tocqueville is as important as you suggest that he is with respect to to, uh, to to understanding the history of the country. I think he's important. I think he's important, but I think it's important to put the Tocqueville in conversation with other voices that are both contemporaneous to him with him in the 19th century and that come after him. But I will say this, I will give you this about the Tocqueville. Um, and, you know, just a reminder for those who don't know, we're talking about a 19th century. Um, he was many things, right? So he was, mm -hmm. he was an aristocrat. He was a political sort of theorist. Um, I think a historian. He was a, he was a politician. He was a, he was a historian. But believe it or not, brother, I, I, I will say this about about the Tocqueville and and what I 
take away from um, his his huge work, Democracy in America. Um, I, I think I think what the Tocqueville is doing there reminds me of the title of of um, your favorite uh, uh, historian's autobiography, Mirror to America. I think I think part of what the Tocqueville was doing in, in the 19th century with his book Democracy in America was holding a kind of mirror up to America mm-hmm. as America existed at that time. Right. Right. Um, showing it some things that that maybe the country was unable to see mm-hmm. because it was too close to some of those things. Right. One one thing being this obsession with the future. Mm-hmm. Right. This disinterest in the past. Right. That right. was a kind of mirror that I think um, the country never really looked squarely at, even even after the public after the public the publication of of the Tocqueville's work. Right. Um, fast forward the clock to the publication of John Hope Franklin's book *Mirror to America*, which has been out now for several years. Um, I think that what's happening at this point is that the country is beginning to look in the mirror. <laughs> I don't think that the country has looked squarely. But it's beginning to turn towards that mirror and see what John Hope Franklin had to say about the country as as refracted through his experience, um, and also perhaps begin to see some of what, some of what the Tocqueville observed way back in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Right. I, uh, I do agree. I do agree. And so, Marks, I think that's a good place to just stop for just a brief sure. minute and take a break. And remind you that you are listening to the Watterson Harvey Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Thank you for being here with us, and we'll be back in just a minute. Again, you're listening to the Watterson Harvey Show here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Marcus and I, just together, we're flying uh, solo. I guess you don't say solo, but we're flying together without a guest this time on the show. We normally have a guest, but this time it's just me and Marcus. Again, kind of talking about the issues that we raised in the last show, which was the 100th show. And again, it's those of you who may be just joining us. You know, we're thinking about the quote that we used at the open that last show, Marcus, from Nelson Mandela, which said, remember to celebrate milestones as you prepare for the road ahead. And we're thinking again about the past. We're thinking about that show that we did. And Thomas Calder was here with us. Conversations that we had around the many issues and Thomas then raising the point after the show was over about his daughter and how she's become fixated on this book by Alexis de Tocqueville. And Marcus, you have raised John Hope Franklin here, and I think, um, you know, which is apropos for uh, this conversation, his book, Mirror to America. As you know, he was one of my uh, heroes, also a mentor who helped guide uh, a lot of my dissertation work at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm very grateful for that. And and I do believe, Marcus, you're right. This idea of reflecting and looking at the reflection in the mirror. Um, and are we there? Are we beginning to do that? I mean, you raised the point that we may be beginning to do that, but not so much in a way that is a serious reflection upon the past, upon the present. 
and thinking about where we want to go into the future. That last show, we talked a lot. Uh, our, you all were able to hear uh, quotes from, um, or at least snippets from a show that we did with Mitch Landrew. And Marcus, as you think, the former mayor of New Orleans, and Marcus, as you raised this point about reflection, um, and that reflection has to be based on something, right? It, we have to be reflecting upon, okay, what is it that is foundational that we're reflecting upon? And I can't help but think about Mitch raising the point in that show that we did with him that this is a nation that is essentially a project um, that we had a specific goal that we said we were kind of working towards our the only nation as he said that was born out of an idea and that ideas we know that all men create equal endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights life liberty and pursuit of happiness and you raising that point Marcus, and as we sit here and think about re reflections, um, I, I I think it's interesting that we raise this point at this particular time because we're headed towards the 200, 250th anniversary of the American Revolution, right? Mm -hmm. which is a time for us as a nation to think about it. This morning I got up, Marcus, and I was reading, you know, you and I, we read all the time, and I was uh, reading just the preface of a book another one of my favorite books written by uh, James historian, James McPherson. And, you know, he wrote a seminal work about the American civil war, which was a major turning point in American history entitled the battle cry of freedom. And, and I highly recommend that book. It's what Marcus and I would call a tome coming out of graduate school, those tomes that we had to be familiar with, but it is a deeply engaging book, but he had another book, Marcus, which was a, a small book, which is a collection of essays. Um, and the title of that book is the second American revolution. And he's looking at, the Civil War, he's looking at it in the context of someone like Abraham Lincoln. And it's interesting that what he says about Lincoln when Lincoln comes into the presidency, his objective in the Civil War was to save the Union, right? He all kept talking about the Union, the Union, the Union of States. Um, you know, we get into this major discussion among historians of who created who, did the states create the Union? Are was it something different? You know, are the who are the states? Is that the people? Um, it's kind of a chicken and egg type of discussion. But he, McPherson points out in the preface of this book, which is interesting, that if you follow Lincoln through his presidency, that while he goes into the presidency and he uses the word union frequently, and in his first inaugural address, he uses it. I think somewhere McPherson may say, I don't have it in front of me here, but he said maybe 20 times he uses the word union. And he only uses the word nation maybe one time. But if you fast forward to the Gettysburg Address, he doesn't say anything about the union. He talked about nation. And so McPherson is raising the point of what is the difference between union and nation? You know, uh, the Civil War changes you know, the way we look at America and we become more of McPherson argues a nation, a nation which is united and less of a union of individual states. This is a question that, you know, I think is important for us to think about. And and I think, you know, worthwhile you all considering here. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm reminded of a point. I can't recall who made this point, but I think it was made in an op ed. Um that I think was published around the time of the January 6th uh, insurrection. Um, 
but the point was made that um and, and I, I, I want to say that, that David Blight's uh, work sort of converges on this point as well. But the op-ed made the point that, um, that, the, that, the, that the country has undergone several, shall we say, uh, foundings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of which occurred essentially um, after the Civil War, right? So that, that in other words, the Civil War um, reconstruction represented a sort of a, a second birth mm-hmm. of the United States, right? Um, that prompted the country to, um, to in some ways, in some ways, reimagine itself. And I think that the, that what you're referring to in terms of Lincoln's usage of the language of union and nation, right, is reflective of that, right? The I, I think the idea being that prior to 1865, certainly certainly during the Civil War, there was this kind of bifurcation. Right. Mm-hmm. Between the idea of union um, and obviously the Confederacy. So we had these sort of competing um, political bodies, these competing political entities in the country, the goal of which, at least from Lincoln's perspective, was to unify these two these two bodies. So civil war ends, Confederacy loses, the union wins. And now the idea is to forge a nation right mm-hmm. out of the out of the kind of. Um, uh, tumult that the Civil War wrought, uh, but the question this raises for me: so, 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 if we accept that the country has undergone several rebirths, one of which occurred after the Civil War, the question that this raises for me it connects to a point that you made about um, well, it, 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 I'm reminded of it by the title of the book that you just referenced, right? Battle cry, battle cry of freedom. And the question for me is, well, free to do what? <laughs> Right. So 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 freedom is this sort of dominant trope in the American story um, and the American experiment. Um, an experiment, which, by the way, and this is something that we that has come up on the show um, on multiple occasions. Right. But an experience that has very much come, an experiment, excuse me, that has come at the expense. Right. Of other people, mm-hmm. of other traditions, of other cultures of other communities, right? Think about um, America's robust Native American landscape, cultural landscape, and how that landscape was decimated by the American experiment. And so the question for me is, you know, for all this, um, for all of this um, energy within the American imagination around freedom, the question for me is, well, freedom to do for what is freedom? Well, for one, what is freedom? Second, what are you wanting to free yourself to do exactly? And I don't know. I don't know if there's ever really been much clarity about that, right? Um, clarity that wasn't sort of restricted to the white American, the white American imagination in particular, right? I think from an African American perspective, uh, there has also been talk about a struggle for like the black freedom struggle. But even then the question becomes, well, freedom, freedom to do what freedom to, to enjoy civil rights. Is that, is that the extent of what we mean, right? By the black freedom struggle. And so while, while I think this idea of freedom, it sounds good, right? It, 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 it sounds sexy and attractive and lofty and elevated, I don't know that we always know what the hell we're talking about when we when we use this language of freedom. We talk about 
you know, freedom in an American context. Um, and so that's what I'm, that's what it, I find a little bit um, um, constructively vexing, right, uh, about uh, the book that you referenced and just about the broader sort of history of the, 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 the trope of freedom in, in, in the American story. All right. And yeah. Marcus, you raise an important and again, I would say philosophical question. Yeah. Um, and you, you're trying in this show today, I see to keep pulling me back into uh, back over to Alexis to Tocqueville <laughs> as someone who addresses this. And I am trying, you know, because I know this has become a, a, a joke with so many. Yeah. And I'm sure with you all out there in the audience that, OK, when is and how many times will he reference Alexis to Tocqueville? <laughs> but, you know, the question that you're raising here. I think is a philosophical question. And if you read Democracy in America, um, you know, de Tocqueville does address the fact that uh, Americans have a philosophy that guide them, but they don't think about it, right? Those of us in the academy do it, but um, American capitalism and its influence on our society is such that, okay, whatever the intellectuals are doing over there, you guys can do that so long as it doesn't impede um, the kind of capitalist project and and that move forward. So there, most of us are happy to kind of pass off any deeply philosophical thinking about anything to those who are kind of in the ivory tower. However, I think the Tocqueville is saying that it it's healthy for the broader community to think about philosophy and what are the philosophical underpinnings of our communities? I would say, what is the philosophical underpinning of our state, uh, the state of North Carolina in this instant, or whatever state you may be listening from, or what are the philosophical underpinnings of, of America itself? What moves it? What guides it? But that recalls for, Marcus, you know, reflection, right? Um, deep reflection. And in this show, you know, I wanted to ask you because you didn't get a chance in the last show mm -hmm. to really uh, talk about what were your favorite shows. I know what your, your favorite shows are. They're the reflection shows. <laughs> and I, I want to give you and I, and I want to give you the opportunity here in a second to talk about why that sure, is sure, the case. Sure. Um, I remember and I recall that we the first show we did as a reflection show, I can't um, remember the number, but uh, the show was titled Reflections. You all can go back and find it kind of in the catalog of shows. But we began that show uh, with a quote of saying that there are three methods by which we learn wisdom. And the first by reflection, which is the noblest. The second by imitation, which is the easiest. And the third by experience, which can be the bitterest. And we said, well, look, we don't want to do deal with the uh, with the easiest or the bitterest here, but we would deal with uh, the first one, which was reflection, the noblest. And so I want to give you a chance to talk about um, to talk about why these reflection shows are the shows that you really, really enjoy. Not that we don't enjoy and you don't enjoy yeah, the shows sure. that we do with guests, but sure. you have a, an affinity for the reflection show. But Marcus, in response to the question that you raised, this philosophical question, here's what comes to mind. Is it the freedom, as we say, to pursue happiness. And then what does that even mean? Exactly. To me, that that is a philosophical, that needs kind of philosophical, deep philosophical thought as well. What does the pursuit of happiness mean? Is that what we mean by freedom, the freedom to pursue happiness? And so what does that mean? But Marcus, you know, you can respond to that. And then in context of responding to that, I would also love to hear um, 
you talk about water reflection shows. Yeah. Are some of the favorite yeah. shows that, that yeah. we've done yeah. for you? Yeah. Well, let me say this first. I, I first want to go back to the um, to the point that the Tocqueville made about um, America having a philosophy um, by which it it proceeds, but um, not spending enough time um, reflecting right on that philosophy on and on whether or not that philosophy aligns with the, the 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 nation's practice uh so a question that i have is well I, for, her, for first of all i don't know that i buy right that there is a coherent sort of philosophical philosophical um underpinning the kind of buttresses um america's understanding of itself i think that i think that there are ideological currents that we can tra- that we can trace Right. And the question then becomes, is ideology the same thing as as philosophy? Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. not sure that it is. I mean, I think there's a there's a very clear pattern um, that we can point to as American ideology. I don't see um, um, as clear a pattern that we could point to and then call it American philosophy. Mm-hmm. Maybe there is, but I, I, I don't see that clearly. So for me, one question is. Are, are we saying that ideology and philosophy are co-equal, right? Um, and even before that, can we even assert? Is there any is there any legitimacy to the Tocqueville's claim that that there is a kind of American philosophy um, that that is traceable across time? I would also add that even if there is um, such a thing as an American philosophy or American philosophies. Um, I think it's important to, for us to remember that, you know, philosophies are like gardens in, in my mind, right? Um, if you have a garden and you don't tend to tend it, it. <laughs> you don't tend to it, then what happens? The garden dies. It mm-hmm. withers away. I think philosophy is the same way. Philosophy is, is like a garden. You construct it, you, you, you nourish it, you water it so that it will grow, become stronger um, and ever more productive, right? Um, if there is such a thing as an American philosophy, I think the best that we can say at this point, given what we, given the evidence that we have seen, the social evidence, the political evidence, right, even the cultural evidence, I think the best that we can say, if there is such a thing as an American philosophy, is that 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 garden, that philosophy has not been well tended. Um, it has been neglected for a very, very long time, so much so that um, what is left is probably unrecognizable. <laughs> right. So so I'm, I'm not sure that I buy this whole this whole notion that there is such a thing as an American philosophy. I, I as I as I look at um, the sort of political history of the world, America strikes me as one of the most ideologically driven um uh political experiments perhaps in human history um mm-hmm. but, but maybe that's maybe that's 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 overstatement but that's a conversation <laughs> for, for another time but but to the question if i can just here yeah, yeah, yeah. let you come back yeah. in on reflection yeah, yeah. you raise you raise a real really good point here and, mm. and a point that i would throw out for uh the audience and for you all to think about how well are we tending the garden that is America? Um, that's a question we can throw out. Are we tending to that garden? Or uh, you know, again, it would take us taking the time to be 
I think in conversation, not only amongst ourselves, but in conversation with the past, right? It, we would have to be willing to reflect and, and deal with the past and, and how well are we doing that? But Marcus, I, as you get ready to talk about uh, why these reflection shows are the shows that you really enjoy so much, I do, I do want to bring up um, here comment that we got from one of our listeners because we put out that question what has the show meant to you and one of you uh one of our listeners janice mewborn and janice you may be listening we hope that you are um we deeply appreciated the comment that you sent in and and i think it marcus you'll be able to kind of unpack it as you think about reflection because here's what janice actually said she said that the show has, and I quote here, helped me realize how much history I don't know or have misunderstood. This has been difficult, but so important. And then she went on to say that our warmth, when she's talking about you and I, Marcus, and in, in our relationship and how the relationship really has deepened over the time that we've been engaged, not only with the show, but in other work. But she ended up, she said, that our warmth and humor, especially when we talk, when the two of us talk together, along with the jazz, help soften the blow of that kind of um, reflection on history that she has been individually doing. And she ended up saying, I love what you are doing in raising consciousness. So I think, Marcus, you will be able to kind of unpack a little bit of what Janice and I deeply appreciate. That's a that's a thought provoking comment that she sent in and how jazz and our humor has softened the blow of that. Yeah. Let yeah. me let you yeah. respond. Yeah. Yeah. And I I, I, I look forward to, to unpacking Janice's uh, Janice's thoughts further. And Janice, if you're listening, thanks again for uh, for your for your email and to all our listeners for your your the reflections that you shared with us um, regarding the the value of the show from your perspective and the impact that the show has had um, in your in your lives. Uh, so 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 before we sort of unpack Janice's uh, comment in particular a bit more, just a few thoughts about um, why I appreciate um, the the reflection shows so much. Firstly, um, as as a professional scholar, as an educator. Um, my natural instinct is to reflect, right? Um, I, that's what I'd probably do most naturally at this point, um, at, at this point in my life. So reflection comes very naturally to me, um, as an educator, as a scholar. And so any opportunity to do that, <laughs> whether publicly or privately or whatever the context, um, is, is very appealing to me, um, and so I, I, I uh, seize upon any opportunity to to do something that to me comes instinctively uh, at this point. Uh, so that's sort of the first uh, thing that attracts me uh, very strongly to the reflection shows. Uh, the second the second uh, reason that the reflection shows are are, are important to me uh, really has to do uh, with with something that happens between the two of us. So. As our listeners know, most of our shows involve a guest, right? And you and I learn a lot from these guests. I mean, these are, these are guests that are coming from, you know, different fields, different parts of the country, you know, different professions, different perspectives, um, so on and so forth. And so we're constantly learning a great deal um, from the various guests that we have on the show. We don't always have an opportunity to, 
to though, at least not on the show, um, to process what we've learned from these guests together. And one of the things that these reflection shows do, at least for me, is provide that opportunity for you and I to to together process what we've learned um, from uh, from previous shows, from guests that we've had on previous shows. And that to me is just incredibly valuable. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one thing for me to to process in isolation. Right. Uh, What we're learning from our various guests. But it's a very different thing, I think. To, to process those conversations with you and learn from that shared practice of processing. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, the, the, the reflection shows will probably always be um, special um, and, uh, and uniquely attractive for those reasons. Right. Well, once again, you're listening to the Watterson Harvey Show here at Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Watterson Harvey Show here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Marcus and I just kind of taking the time in this show to kind of reflect upon the past 100 shows that we've done. We're talking a little bit about the previous show with Thomas Calder, and Marcus just offered some of his thoughts about what his favorite shows are. And they have been these reflection shows. And as Marcus just said, it gives us an opportunity to really process what we're learning from our engagement in conversations with other people. Marcus, I want to give you an opportunity to just go ahead and pick back up on that. And also the thing about Janice, and you know, we, we talk about Janice's uh, comment, Janice Mewborn um, and the, uh, the email that she sent us in her thoughts and reflections about the show. And I'm just intrigued by what she said about learning, helping her learn more about history, how much, she didn't know how much has been misunderstood Marcus. i'm engaging that also all the time so janice you're not alone in that respect and sometimes this uh, learning some of this new history is is not it's not all um rosy right some of it is is very hard hitting when we think about what has happened i was just reading uh not too long ago a book about uh, the massacre of African-American Civil War soldiers in a part of North Carolina uh, at one point during the war. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head how many of these African-American soldiers were massacred, but they were just just summarily killed. Um, And that took place here on the territory of of our state. So this is ugly history. Even when we think about the history of enslavement, Marcus, you've raised a point about Native American history and culture and how so much of it has been erased. I think about Latino culture uh, in the United States, especially in the West and the Southwest of of the United States and how so much of that history has been kind of just uh, remains invisible to us. But you're you're correct. And I think Janice is right, because sometimes I still am shocked, even as a historian, by some of the stories that have just kind of been passed over. Yeah. Yeah, this is I mean, this is this is this is a difficult one. Uh, I, I would I would say a few things. Um, so firstly, you know, you're right. Um, and I think Janice has, has observed this, um, history and, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that history is somehow this, this pristine record that is not itself a kind of construction, right? A kind of authored construction. It is very much an authored construction that can be interpreted, reinterpreted, contested, so on and so forth. Um, But 
the historical facts, for example, um, of the American experiment, as, as I will continue to call it, um, many, if not most of those facts are, I'll just say it, horrific. <laughs> I mean, horrific in, um, in the scope of their violence, right? Horrific in their social impact, their cultural impact, their human impact, um, and though those, you know, the historical facts of the American experiment are not easy to confront. They're not easy to um, wrestle with. They're, they aren't even easy to talk about. Right. Um, but we have to do it nonetheless. I think um, part of what makes you and I, Darren, able to talk about the historical facts of the American experiment in the way that we do and I'll just, I'll just say it forthrightly, um, has to do with the fact that, you know, as, as two African-American men, uh, you know, we, we have both had to struggle with the process of humanizing ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Of humanizing ourselves um, as, as Black men embedded in a society whose, whose, dominant ideology or that has embraced a dominant ideology uh perhaps since it's, since it's in, since its inception of anti-blackness right so so how do you find your humanity um in an environment like that well one of the ways that you find it is through humor mm-hmm. right <laughs> through 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 creativity through friendship um through reflection <laughs> right through reflection and so I, I think the fact that you and I, in our um, in our individual ways, have have figured out how to humanize ourselves in a fundamental in a racially hostile environment, um, has really helped to facilitate and strengthen our ability to talk about the brute facts of the American of the American the brute historical facts of the American experiment um, in a way that is that is accessible. Right. I don't know that we that we would be able to present these conversations in the way that we do were it not for right uh, the fact that you that you and I both have had this sort of have both sort of un, um, have, have have undergone this this process of having to of having to humanize ourselves and so mm-hmm. um, yeah I, I think I think uh, uh, Janice's Janice's reflections are are helpful in that regard. Um, and I also love that she that she referenced uh, jazz music, right? I think I think jazz, stylistically speaking and structurally speaking, you know, as we've noted on the show previously, is very much reflective of our approach to staging these conversations, right? With guests, um, with each other, uh, it is very much. And I'm going to just reference uh, an idea from 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 jazz itself. But is but these conversations for me are very much um, are very much uh, engaged in uh, theme and variation, right? Um, variations on a the theme. So we will present a theme as a sort of broad topic of conversation, and then we will sort of reflectively riff off of that theme in the same way that jazz musicians during his jazz performance uh, will riff off of. A particular melodic theme 
and in so doing sort of build a conversation um, across whatever instruments are involved. And so I think this this metaphor of, of, of jazz music is 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 very apropos. It's very apropos. Right. And it's um it's helpful to know that that, that approach is useful uh, for our listeners. So thanks again, Janice, for for sharing for sharing that that thought. That it offers a way. I'm, I agree, Marcus. That it offers a, offers a way to uh, to deal with some of the ugly facts and truths of of the historical experience. Experience. You and I have talked in in talking about jazz, and even in the last show, we referenced the work of uh, Stanley Crouch. Um, and here, for you all in the audience who are interested, I would recommend Crouch and his work um, in one of his books in particular, which is a collection of essays um, uh, called uh, The Great American Skin Game, Are of the Decoy of Race. Um, and it's a collection of essays. And he talks about jazz and blues. And, you know, Marcus, you and I have referenced, and I've said this before in other places, that it's interesting with the blues, the blues tradition, that we use the blues to get over the blues, right? Uh, who who goes into hearing a blues song and you don't come out of it, you know, you know, you're kind of clapping your hands, you feel much better. So the blues are used to to cure the blues. Um, and Crouch references the founding generation of this uh, country, America, as being somewhat bluesmen. They were optim they were optimists um, in some ways, but they were also bluesmen in another way that they knew humanity was capable of doing things that that we were capable of doing things that are ugly. Right. Um, so they attempted in he he argues to create to create a, a, a structure for, as we are saying now, the nation um, that would allow us to use the blues. And if you look at the Constitution itself, it restricts um, it, it tries to restrict. Uh, we have gone through this process where we have amended the Constitution over time to widen what we would say the scope of freedom. We know that in the case of our uh, the heritages and the traditions in the community that we come from, that the 13th, the 14th and the 15th Amendment become fundamental I mean, Marcus was in a conversation with my father just recently, and I think he was very surprised to, to, to think about it in terms that he's really only one generation removed from enslavement. Mm-hmm. Um, his his grandfather, uh, Lewis Waters, who I've talked about and there's been work on him. Um, Lewis Waters was born enslaved in, in 1860 um, and was was freed during the general emancipation in 1865. And then that was confirmed after the adoption of the 13th Amendment. But that makes me, you know, what really two generations removed from enslavement. I mean, it's it's hard to think that we've it come is. so far, but we are so close to these periods in time. So we recommend, highly recommend the work of Stanley Crouch in thinking about jazz and blues and these traditions and what it means. Uh, Crouch also uses the term in, in describing America as this great American combo, uh, gumbo, um, where you're putting together all of these ingredients, but you're getting something rich and that um, is good uh, that comes out of it. But Marcus, in, in, in order for that to be the case, you've got to be willing to admit that there's something 
that we get and we gain from all of these cultural traditions that make up this American experience, right? This yeah. American yeah. experiment. So let yeah. me turn it over. To yeah, you. And, and I would just say, along with Stanley Crouch, um, when I've, I've referenced him before, one of my when I one of my absolute favorite thinkers is Albert Murray. Yes, and there's a also a jazz critic, cultural critic, social critic. But there's a book that he's written that I highly recommend um, our readers take a look at. It's entitled "The Blue Devils of Nada." The Blue Devils of Nada, a Contemporary American Approach to Aesthetic Statement. And thinking about the blues, there's a there's a quick quote that I want to read from uh, from that text uh, where uh, in his characteristic way, Murray is reflecting on the blues. Um, So so he says he says, but no matter how they they being the blues, no matter how they come to be there again, the main thing about them is all the botheration they bring. And your most immediate concern is how to dislodge them before the botheration degenerates into utter hopelessness. So the very first problem that it all adds up to is as specific as is the ghost-like vagueness of their very existence. What it requires, he says, is the primordial and ever-persistent effort to purify the environment once more. So what's significant for me from that um, sort of analysis of the blues and the African-American experiment uh, experience is that the blues plays a role in our effort to to use Murray's language, quote unquote, purify the environment um, so that we can find our humanity. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's through the, the 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 way in which the blues idioms, the jazz idioms help us to wrestle with the brute reality of our experience within the American experiment. It's through that wrestling that we're able to forge an environment where we can find our humanity. Right. Mm -hmm. But that work of wrestling is difficult. It's painful. It's frightening. It haunts us. He talks about a ghost like quality. Right. When he when he when he reflects on the blues. And this is why people like Cornel West, you know, um, would would agree that for him, African-Americans are a blues people. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure I would go that far, but I, but I, I see why, <laughs> why, why West, why West would say that. Right. Um, so, yeah, I highly recommend this text. Um, again, Blue, the Blue Devils of Nada, a contemporary American approach to a steady statement, Albert Murray. Right. And if you and if you're like, you know, Janice and, and you're finding that jazz and and thinking about the blues helps to soften the blow it a little bit. Um, you know, th- there are other texts that you read. I'm glad, Marcus, that you raised the book by um, by. Uh, Albert Murray and also his book Omni Americans is a really Absolutely. good one to engage yeah. as well. And we'd also uh, offer up, you know, as another title, um, Amiri Baraka, uh, his mm-hmm. book The Blues People, oh, uh, yeah. which was a book mm-hmm. that uh, Cornel West did um, recommend Absolutely. to me. And it kind of charts American history and especially the African-American experience through music. And so it's a really rich text. So we've come to the end of this show. Marcus and I, you know, we we told you all last time that we have outlines in front of us when we do these shows, but those quickly go out the door 
as it should be, Marcus, because conversations. Let's just go outline less from here on out. There's no more. <laughs> we should, you know, no more planning. We'll just jump in. <laughs> but I, uh, you know, which is as it should be, because conversation should be organic. And I feel that every conversation that I'm in with you, brother, is a very organic mm-hmm. and enriching conversation. We hope that you all find that to be the case with us, too. Um, Marcus, as we were thinking about, you know, I, I, as we went through this conversation, I thought about the tension that exists between in America and the tension in American history between individuality and community. And it made me think of a quote uh, or a piece of from a brief piece and statement from uh, Albert Einstein in his piece, What I Believe. And he started it out, started that piece out by saying, strange is our situation here upon Earth. Each of us comes here for a short visit, not knowing why, yet sometimes seeming to divine a purpose. From the standpoint of daily life, however, there is one thing we do know that man and I would say that human beings are uh, human beings. I would put that that man is here for the sake of other men above all for those upon whom upon whose smiles and well-being our own happiness depends. And he goes on to say more there, but I think that that's one, a rich one to engage. So thank you all for joining us in this show. Marcus and I really, again, appreciate having you here. We want to remind you that the Waters and Harvey show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, and in partnership with the Institute for the Promotion of Human Understanding. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps, and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And again, you can follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter, or you can write us at whshow at bpr.org. And Marcus and I will look forward to engaging you in conversation next time. Take care. Take care.